We are in the fourth week of our series, Living in Exile. And we have been talking about how Christians should live and conduct themselves as our culture becomes more post-Christian, meaning we are kind of past the age when Christianity had this really major shaping influence on our culture. It, it, it's not the dominant moral and social influencer anymore. Um, and it doesn't have that power over what people um, believe and how they live and, and all of that. Um, but this progression away from Christianity kind of being this dominant force has gotten faster and faster. It's almost just like the snowball. It just gets bigger and bigger and rolls faster and faster as it goes down the hill. And um, it's progressed so quickly that there's a lot of us who are Christians who um, look around at our world now and it feels like we're not in the same world that we were born into or, or that we grew up in. Things feel so different. And whereas faith used to be kind of this, again, cultural thing, it's, it's very much become isolated to our churches. It's not something we see or experience in culture much anymore. And so it feels like our world has changed. And so that's why in this series, what we've been doing is we've been looking at a period in uh, the history of ancient Israel when they were conquered by the bigger, more powerful nation called Babylon. And Babylon, when they came in, they didn't just conquer it. Um, they also kidnapped a bunch of people from Israel and took them back to Babylon. Uh, they kind of took the best and the brightest, thinking this will make our population better. We'll take their smart people and their really uh, industrial people, and we'll take them back, and it'll, they'll just make our culture better. And what happened was they started pressuring these Israelites into conforming to their this new culture. And so you had all these people who almost overnight were taken away from their homes, from the world, this culture that was all about loving Yahweh, the, the one true God of Israel, and they were into this place, that uh, this culture that they didn't understand or recognize and that was pressuring them to give up their old ways and take on these new ways. Now, the first two weeks, what we did, uh, we looked at um, the book of Daniel, and we specifically looked at how four guys were handling this pressure. Like, when did they choose to kind of say, no, here's where we're not going to change and compromise anymore. Um, last week, we moved uh, to the book of Jeremiah, and we're going to, from, from last week to the rest of the series, we're going to look at um, a letter that, Jer or a piece of a letter that Jeremiah wrote um, to these very first exiles, kind of telling them how to conduct their lives. Like, okay, you're in this new culture that you don't understand. You've got this kind of whiplash. You lived in this, you, you were raised in this world that was all about honoring God and following God, and now you're in this world that's totally different. How do you live in that? And that's appropriate. That's why this is the connection point with us, because a lot of us, again, you grew up in a world, and the older you are, the truer this is. You grew up in a world where you were encouraged to honor God and live by God. And the morals of our culture were all about honoring God. And, but instead of us being kidnapped away to a foreign culture, our culture shifted around us so that while we stood still, we now find ourselves in a world that we don't recognize, a culture that we don't understand as well. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look back in the book of Jeremiah. We'll be in Jeremiah chapter 29. Um, and we're going to just look at what Jeremiah says to these people. And in fact, it's God speaking through Jeremiah um, to tell these people, here's how you live in a culture you don't, you don't recognize anymore. Here's how you stand strong in a world that's pressuring you. And here are some things you can do in this season when life feels very upside down and confused. And what we're going to see today is that exiles are to become a positive part 
of their community. Exiles are, are meant to be a force of good where God has placed them. That's what he calls these exiles to do. And so we're just going to go right ahead into Jeremiah 29. If you brought a Bible, awesome. If you didn't, that's totally fine. There's a black one in the pews near you. Or the verses will be on the screen. If you want to use a Bible app, you can do that also as well. There's a lot of good ones out there. Um, let's go Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to be in verse 4. Now, if you were here last week or you watched online last week, you're going to think, didn't we, do, didn't we read these verses last week? Absolutely we did. But sometimes there's so much packed into the verses of Scripture that you can go over them twice, and there's more gems to mine that require a second pass. So that's what we're doing today. Uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So talking to these people that no longer live where they lived and they're in this foreign culture. How do you do that? How do you survive? What are you going to do now that you're in this strange place? He says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. So God tells them to just settle down. Build your life. Don't sit there pining away for an escape, but you're here, I've put you here, so start, build your, start building your lives there. Um, so they get told to you know, have, uh, build houses, have some babies, throw weddings, do all the things you normally do in a life, plant a garden. How many of you like have a garden at home? Okay, how many of you kill everything you touch? Yeah, I'm a killer, I kill everything. Can't, can't grow anything to save my life, right? But it's part of life. We still try every now and then. Every now and then, like, maybe I should plant some new flowers and see how it goes. It always goes the same, but it's a part of life. And he says, get out there. Live your lives. Start building a life for yourself in this foreign place, in this place that is difficult and different and un, uh, unfamiliar. Get out there and start building a life. Now, what's interesting, though, is um, from their perspective, that they didn't probably naturally want to invest and build a life in this culture. Like from the Israelite standpoint, this culture was sinful and their morality was wrong and they just didn't agree with it. And so they probably were like, I'd, I'd rather just go back if that's okay with you, God. But God said, no, here's where you are. Here's where I've planted you and here's where you need to just set your roots and grow. Um, one of the common responses that you can see if you kind of look in the rearview mirror of how Christians, Christians and the ch American church specifically has responded as culture's been just like shifting so much the last 20 or 30 years is we have kind of retreated from culture. We didn't want to engage in culture as much, especially the harder it got, and so we've just kind of retreated away from culture, you know, because we didn't understand what was going on out there, and out there was uncomfortable, and now in culture, instead of being praised for being a Christian, you had some people who were, you know, very opposed and would have very strong arguments with you if they found out you were a Christian, and so the natural thing just kind of got to be, I'm just gonna, we're just gonna stay here. It's a little easier here. It's a little safer here. No one's griping at me here or yelling at me here. We're, and so we kind of retreated either kind of within our own little walls, our own little bubble. And it's easier to have these live lives with people who agree with you. It's easier to have conversations with people who are going to be like, yeah, and like kind of put their fist in the air when you make a good point rather than people that are like, how dare you and want to start an argument. And what's uh, really 
crazy. Our culture has just gotten so divided. This isn't news to anybody, but we can't even have civil conversations anymore. Our, our entire culture is this way. You cannot have conversations with people, it seems like, who disagree with you without it being some big, horrible deal. We've lost the ability to have empathy and see the, at least appreciate the views of someone else, at least to try to understand the views of someone else. We don't want to do that. We just want to, again, have somebody pat us on the back and feel like we're more right than whoever else we want to argue with. And so it's gotten very complicated. And Christians have not done a great job of engaging well with culture. And those who were eager to go out and attack culture, I don't know that they were the ones that should have been responsible for doing that. Uh, usually it's the loudest, angriest person who gets a microphone, and that hasn't always you know, boded well for us either in culture. And so as culture has shifted, we've kind of just retreated. Now, I think one of the most popular reasons why we did this is because we wanted to kind of protect our kids as they were raised up. We thought, well, this culture is crazy. We don't want our kids growing up in this crazy culture. And so we thought, let's get them in here and get them away from all of that craziness, and we'll try to really pour into them with some Jesus stuff, and hopefully that'll work out for us in the end. And one of the big ways Christians have done that is by cutting themselves off from, like, media and stuff. Um, I was not particularly raised in a very strict Christian household, um, like some were. Um, There were certain things, obviously, that I was not allowed to watch and whatnot, but um, Abby's family was more strict on that sense. So I'll say something about The Simpsons, and she's like, "Didn't I was not allowed to watch The Simpsons growing up. Which is funny, because you go back again, 20 years when we were kids, that was a little bit of an edgy show, right? Now it's like one of the least edgy things on TV. Like, the world has gotten, again, changed so much, right? And so there was things that, like, I was allowed to watch that she was not allowed to watch. And there's things that, like, I was like, really? That was just a normal part of my childhood. Why? Like, that's weird that that was like, no. Line in the sand, no. And so there's a lot of ways that we kind of cut off from stuff like that as Christians. And um, what's interesting is, out of that retreat, uh, there arose all, all of these different kinds of Christian entertainment that did not exist before, um, especially for kids, right? started with kids especially. Like you get um, VeggieTales and you get, you know, Bob and Larry the tomato, right? Um, it's funny, even at like youth group last a couple weeks ago, all the kids, like somebody made some joke about Bob and Larry and they were like, yeah, Bob and Larry! Like even those, like they all knew it. All the church kids knew it. And you could tell the kids that didn't grow up in church because they were like, who? Talking tomato? Boo, like that sounds lame. And, and um, uh, then you get like things like Bible Man, have you ever seen Bible Man? Oh, that's probably one of the worst things that's been ever. Uh, at least the older version of it was pretty rough. Um, um, Abby recently did some internet detective work to try to find uh, this cartoon that she watched when she was a kid called Little Dogs on the Prairie. And it's all about, the, did you, you know it? It's not lovely, okay? She found it. She loved it. It's all nostalgic for her. She's like, oh, I watched this as a kid. She shared it with her brothers and sisters. They were like, oh, yeah, Little Dogs. And I'm watching it. I'm like, this is not great, okay? Not the best thing, okay? And, and I'm not saying that it's bad that Christians have made these sort of, you know, Christian-specific forms of entertainment. I am not saying that at all. I'm just saying, like, a lot of that came out of our desire to kind of back away from what culture had to offer. Not, rather than getting into culture, there's been areas where we've tended to just back away. And so um, that's kind of where a lot of that came from. But I think o- overall... That hasn't been a, just to say, stay back, culture's bad, 
that, that kind of very black and white approach has not been overly helpful for us. It has not helped us advance the cause of Christ much as, as our world has changed and actually given us a lot more opportunities to share Jesus. When we retreat from culture, yeah, we do survive in our little bu- bubble. And it, yes, it's more comfortable and makes life a little easier for us as Christians. But the trade-off is uh, we kind of stop being the force of of positive good in the world that God has called us to be. Uh, We cannot shine the light of the gospel when we're hidden away. Uh, During the Last Supper, Jesus talked about this, okay? Um, The Last Supper, if you don't know, it was his last meal right before he goes and gets arrested and crucified and dies on the cross. And he sits with his uh, closest uh, 12 guys and he starts the, institutes the, Last Supper, the communion, uh, he, the, the ritual, the remembrance ritual that we call communion or the Lord's Supper or maybe you're from a church background that calls it the Eucharist. Um, but that's when he, he instituted that little ritual that still takes place in churches 2,000 years later. Um, it's where he washed his disciples' feet. Even uh, Judas, who was going to betray him, Jesus sat down and he washed their stinky, smelly, fungusy, gross feet. What an act, as an act of ultimate service to them, right? And, and during the same meal, Jesus also prayed that God would protect his, his followers because he was going to send them out in the world to be a light in the darkness. And so here's what Jesus says. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to God. He says, and I am no longer in the world. He's basically saying, Father, I'm, I'm getting ready to come on home. But they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, meaning keep them faithful. Allow their faith not to break. Allow them to be faithful to you and faithful to this mission that I have given them, this message that I have given them, which this keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. Jesus, meaning I was able to kind of help protect them and and keep them strong and pour into them, but I'm going to be gone now. He says, I've guarded them and not lost, and, and not one of them has been lost except for the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's Judas. He says, but now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that, um, and these things that I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world. He, again, he's saying, The natural stance of Christianity is that it just doesn't fit always with culture. There's going, especially in that world, some of these guys were going to go to a Jewish culture that didn't really appreciate their their uh, teaching. Uh, Some of these guys were going to go out to a non-Jewish culture, a very polytheistic, crazy, wild culture that wasn't going to appreciate their teaching. And he says they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Don't retreat them. Don't take them away. Don't take them out of the world, but that you, again, keep them. Keep them faithful. Keep them safe from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, meaning grow them, make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus doesn't pray that God would hide them away. He doesn't say shield them from everything in the world. No, he acknowledges they're going to go into a world and they're going to do ministry in a place where it's not easy. 
They're going to be in a culture that doesn't welcome them immediately. They're going to be interacting with ideas that are drastically different from their own. What Jesus does ask is that God would solidify them on the truth, that they would be able to stand firm on the words and truth of God so that when they encountered all these different ideas, they weren't knocked around or, or pushed over, their faith didn't crumble, but that they already had a solid foundation to stand on. So that maybe the better reaction, rather than, than hiding away from culture and trying to stay away and say, culture bad, church good, everything, here's good, that's all bad. We were supposed to be people who were spending our time together, being made solid, standing solid on the truth, and then going out and engaging the world after we've already been given this firm foundation. The truth of God helps us stand stable as we engage in a culture that has different ideas and sometimes hostile attitudes toward us. And Jesus isn't the only one who talked about this. The Apostle Paul, he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, Greece, um, and he wrote most of the New Testament, by the way, so he wrote a whole lot of things, but he taught them um, that they had made a misunderstanding. They had caught in this, they, they'd misunderstood something that he had written to them before, and they thought he was telling them, yeah, you stay out of the world. World's bad, church is good, and that's black and white, and that's how you live. You stay out of there, you, you live in here. And he tries to, uh, in the second letter that he writes to them, he tries to correct some things to them. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, which, again, that letter, we don't have that. You notice this is 1 Corinthians I don't know if you call that zeroth Corinthians, but it's a letter that didn't survive time. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world, or the greedy, and the swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. So he wrote them before, stay away from sexually immoral people. And then he thought, they thought that meant, oh, the sinners of the world. The world that we live in has a drastically different sexual belief system than the church does. And so they started like holding themselves off, saying, ooh, the world's bad and evil. And he's like, no, that's not what I meant. I didn't tell you to cut yourself off from sin sinful people or people who don't uh, follow Christ. He's like, if you did that, you'd, you'd have to just basically be removed from the world altogether, which is what they were doing. They were hiding away. He says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. He's saying, I, he's, he, I told you to stay away from people who claim to be Christians, but we're not living and following the truth of God. Those people, he says, those people you need to cut yourself off from because they are hypocrites. They're not true followers of Jesus. He says, brother, if he is uh, someone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not to even eat with such a person. So he tells us we need to cut ourselves off from Christians who are doing sinful things rather than people who don't follow Christ who do sinful things. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, even though this has been in the Bible that Christians have always followed for the last 2,000 years, this has been something that we have consistently tended to get backwards. This idea that we cut ourselves off from the world and we live here with Christian people. But what we've done, especially in the last, I'd say, 100 years, is we have let Christians, in our, anyone who calls themselves a Christian, we just let them get away with all kinds of sin. You know why? Because it's awkward. 
it's weird to talk to someone. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. How dare you tell me? Like, we, just don't, we just don't handle conflict well. And so in the church, we let people get away with all kinds of stuff that Christianity that has historically said, that's not okay. And Paul says, rather than looking out the windows of your church going, that world's an awful, horrible, sinful world, and shaking your fist at it, he's like, why aren't you judging the sin and dealing with the sin in your own midst and trying to make your church a better place by helping people leave sin behind and, and walk in the freedom that Christ wanted us all to walk in? We're, instead, we're pointing our fingers at people that we never talk to who are sinful, and we let sin just run rampant in our own midst. And that's not the way that it was meant to be. He said, you, we've got everything backwards. We need to be hard on sin in here, because in here we're all people who have, not all, but mostly we're people who said, I want to follow Jesus, I want to put sin away, I want my old life to be gone, and I want to live a new life of freedom to Christ. That means we should be helping each other get freedom from those sins. But out there, we should have compassion and grace and mercy. Because those are the people that, they don't, why would they live like Christians? Why would they follow Christ? Because many of them have never even heard his name. Uh, heard his name not be used as a cuss word, I guess I should say. That's what most people have heard Jesus' name as anymore. And so Paul wrote this letter saying, you guys are hiding away. That's not, that's not at all what I meant. And it's interesting because when, when I was a, a high school student who became a new Christian, the, the kind of instruction that I was given was you evangelize people in your school, in your peer group. You can invite people to church, but don't really be friends with those people. You be friends with the youth group kids. And looking back now, I kind of understand that was it probably served me good because I had a very young faith and it probably pr helped protect me and my little tiny baby faith. But again, I don't think it was great to just give them, th th that's just kind of our blanket black and white approach. Out there bad, in here good. I don't know if that's what God has called us to do. I think we need something a little bit more um, nuanced than just everybody hide from the scary world. Um, because God calls us to be in the world, but not of the world, not our, we are of Christ. We live in the Spirit, so we're not of the world. But we have to be in the world to do the mission to help more people come to know the the saving work of Jesus. And so it's hard to love and serve people you're hiding from. And I think you can see the results of this hiding away and not really interacting with the the world and people in our culture. Because now Christians have gotten the attitude where we we don't have a good relationship with people in our culture. More Christians have gotten this reputation of hating people in the gay community than trying to understand and love and know their story and, and reach them for Christ. We have, this, uh, we have this kind of mindset where, out, again, they're the enemy. No, no, they're the mission. And we've forgotten that and we've lost that, I think, as a church. And I don't just mean us as a church. I mean just kind of the American church has lost that idea of understanding that the world, the culture that, that doesn't know him, that's our mission field. We are supposed to be a light in the darkness. And so God doesn't command these people, these, these exiles who have been kidnapped away to Babylon, he doesn't set, tell them, set up a new little Israel protected away from this country of Babylon. He says, no, you're in Babylon, build your houses Build your families, find wives for your kids, which they would probably have to have their kids marry people from Babylon a lot of times. And so God tells them, settle in, make this place your home. And then he gives them one, again, little bit of advice that I think is so beautiful and so profound that we didn't talk about it much last week, so we're going to talk about it this week. It's in Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, verse 27. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. 
Again, don't judge. He doesn't say spend all your time judging them. Don't hide away from them. But you want to seek their welfare. You want to try to bless these people that are different than you, that you don't understand, that actually might even be against you in some ways. He says, seek their welfare uh, of the city that I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So this final bit of instruction God gives is for them to work for the good of the people that they live around now. These, this new people group, this new nation that they live in. He said, you're here to be people who work for their good. Your job now as Israelites in Babylon is to be a blessing to the people of Babylon. Again, a light in the darkness. Do not hide from them, do not hate them, but work for their good. Now, one of the best ways that we can do this as Christians, as we find ourselves in, again, in a culture that is different and weird and un- hard to understand at times, is we try to be um, good neighbors. We try to um, bless our towns, our communities. Uh, we try to bless our schools. We try to bless the people that live next door, the people that live down the street. We look for ways to meet needs, spiritual needs, physical needs, whatever it is. We want to be a force for good in those places. Uh, we got to get to know people to do that. We can't avoid them. We got to know people who don't agree with us. Uh, we can't avoid people just because that might at times bring a little bit of conflict as people don't like what we believe. Um, now, it's really actually amazingly beautiful in this phrase. Let me go back a little bit. Where he says, seek the welfare. Um, doesn't mean much to us in English. But if you go to the original Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in, it gets pretty cool. Um, that word seek in the original Hebrew is a word that means to tread a path. Um, a few years ago, well, when Abby and I moved Alex into the uh, college up in Chicago, at the University of Illinois, Chicago, um, we we uh, would always kind of come into campus and exit campus in this one kind of corner because that was the closest route to our hotel, right? And there was, at the corner of campus, there was this really nice, beautiful, grassy kind of field area, a couple blocks big. It was a real big rectangle, right? And it was real nice, except right through the middle of it, diagonal from one corner to the, to the corner where this main street was, was a big old bare, dry-as-a-bone dirt patch. Um, because as students, rather than walking the nice, you know, manicured sidewalks and everything, they would just cut through the middle. I actually went and found a Google uh, image of it, a Google Earth image of it. Hold on. Okay, yeah, you can see it, right? Um, at, I, this is a little bit later time frame than when we were there, so they'd started doing construction. They actually changed a lot of this, um, but, um, so that's why the grass doesn't look good. But when we were there, it was just a nice, beautiful, lush grass with this dead path in the middle. Now that, that grassy uh, line, straight as an arrow down the middle of this field, that didn't come because one student decided to take a shortcut. It didn't happen because one person walked there one time. It came and the grass died and this path was paved and, and made very, very clear, even from an overpassing plain, it was made this way from thousands of students making thousands of trips down this particular way. That's what it means to tread a path. You don't tread a path in one pass. And so when it tells us to seek the welfare of the place where we are, it's, it's done through repeatedly looking out for the good, repeatedly investing in the neighborhood, repeatedly investing consistently over time, investing good into the community. And then the word welfare, seek the welfare of this place. It's the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. But the idea is much more than just peace. It means to have everything wrong righted, 
to have everything that was uh, messed up or, or put in a, sense, a state of upheaval, everything gets put right back where it belongs in its rightful place. Uh, the way I've tended to explain uh, the real idea of shalom is um, a few years ago when our kids were little, um, my, our little kids did what every little kid does. They walked around our house and took anything that could be dumped out and dumped it out. Everything of, every little basket with toys, dumped. Uh, every bas- basket or container of blocks, dumped. Uh, all the books off the bottom two shelves on the bookshelf, just pulled out for no reason. They're just little heathens walking around making a mess, right? And they're just tearing everything up and stressing everybody out because they don't even play with the stuff they dump. They just dump it and like, okay, time to make some more mess. Like, they just move on to the next thing, right? And um, we quickly learned that trying to clean up after them during the day was a useless, useless thing. And so after the kids would go to bed, Abby and I would walk around her house and put all the things back in the baskets and boxes they belong and put the books back on the bookshelf. And we would kind of restore everything to its rightful place. And we would kind of bring shalom to our house. And after everything was put away, we could kind of sit on the couch and be like, all right. Now I can relax a little bit because, you know, the whole day when you're like having to walk to your bathroom so you don't step on a Lego, that's a stressful thing to do. And then when you do step on one, there's just, you can go from the sanest, calmest you've ever been to the most angry you've ever been in a split second. And so we would go around our house and restore, put everything right back where it belongs. That's a lot bigger idea of a mission for what we are to do in our communities. We are to restore shalom, to help people bring peace and restoration to their lives. For anything that is not God's will for them, we are here to go and help them put the pieces back together, put things back where they belong. And so this is an opportunity, this command is an opportunity to help so many people, especially people who don't know God, and show them the beauty and the fullness of life with him. Um, There's so many ways that we can meet needs and and chances to bring restoration in the communities we live in. Uh, We can try to make sure there's no one in our communities that goes hungry. Starvation is not God's will. That is not shalom. And to bring uh, abundance into the lives of those who do not have it, that is restoring shalom. Uh, We can provide training for how to live a better life. Um, One of the things that churches really focus on is we want to live in the wisdom of God. Outside of that, I'm not, I mean, people can try a self-help book here and there, but that's not always a main focus of some people's lives. So we can provide guidance, financial guidance sometimes. We've done um, Financial Peace University around here. It's helped a lot of people kind of turn their finances right side up. Um, we can provide parenting guidance. Uh, there's a lot of people that became parents after they grew up in a dysfunctional place, and they don't know how to be a loving, kind parent because all they've got is a bad model to follow. We can be a, a place that here's, here's how you can love your kids well. Uh, we can, um, for those kids who are currently growing up in a bad place, we can be a sort of a respite for them, a place where they can come and find acceptance and, and be told that they are loved and valued, that they don't have to go to school every day and be like, my life's a mess, I'm worthless, I can't do anything good. Because if that's all they're hearing at home, then that's what they carry with them, and that's not shalom in their soul when that is their default stance. We can help bring shalom to them. Uh, We can serve our towns by being good citizens through uh, voting, things like that. Being involved, knowing what's going on, and and finding opportunities to serve. Maybe something as simple as picking up trash on the sidewalk. Uh, That can be um, just a a good way to restore shalom. And that happens when we do it over and over and over again. And then the last thing he says is, and pray for this community. Pray for the place where you have been uh, put. 
um, to pray for those people that we are around. Now, unfortunately, Christians have, again, we've tended to vilify rather than pray for people. We've just, you know, if we prayed for people who, that we didn't agree with, we might be tempted to pray, God, if there's a meteor up there you could send their way, or if there's a lightning strike, God, that would be great. But that's not what he says here. We're to pray for their thriving and flourishing that they might be able to find the love of God through our actions. And so as we've, you know, done, as we've tried to hide and protect ourselves, um, we have not always been good servants. We have not been good agents of restoring shalom in our world. But just as Jesus took the time to sit down and wash the feet of those disciples, every single one of whom was going to betray him that very night and run away from him and not have his back that very night. And he knew that. He sat down and he washed their feet. Just like that, we are called to love and serve a people, a community of people that we know aren't always going to agree with us or even like us. And so we've got to, though, take seriously that exiles are to become a positive part in their community. Um, Ultimately, no one should be a better member of a community, a better neighbor, or a better friend than a Christ follower, regardless of whether somebody is a Christian or not. No one should be more outgoing and serving and kind than those who are a part of the church. Um, And there's lots of ways we can do this. Just to give you a couple that are coming up really soon, next next Saturday, or this coming Saturday, excuse me, um, we're going to help with the town Easter egg hunt. It's just a way to come and partner along with people who are in the community who want to do a good thing and just say, hey, we love what you're doing and we want to help. We want to help you be a blessing to the kids. Um, we're going to run some games for a little bit. It's not d- terribly difficult at all. Um, they're very simple, fun, just fun games because um, if you've ever been to the Loami Easter egg hunt and you showed up five minutes late, you missed it. It's like the kids like are... It's like dogs on a stake. I mean, it's, it's over. when As soon as it starts, it's over. And so we wanted to make it this thing where there's a little bit of, of something to it where there's a little bit more fun uh, than just how much candy can I rake in in the shortest amount of time. And it's, just, it's been a fun thing that we've been a part of for several years, and, it's, and um, the town really appreciates it. So if you want to help out with that and love our community, um, there's a sign-up sheet next to the TV out there. Um, another one is next Saturday. We're going to be cleaning the camp pool which is a lovely job. Um, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit of a gross job, but if you love seeing radical transformation in a project from, in a very short amount of time, it is the job for you. Because you walk up to this pool when we get there, and it's brown and green and full of leaves and salamanders and all kinds of fun stuff, right, that we scoop out of there. And then by the end, it's pristine and a beautiful blue. And it's like, yeah, mm, you feel good about yourself when you do it. If anybody wants to help out with that, um, that's at uh, Lake Springfield Christian Assembly uh, next, uh, next Saturday. What time are we doing that? At, at 8, bright and early. We're going to get after it. Um, and then there's another one is um, I'm hoping that we're going to be hosting baccalaureate this year. For the high school seniors. Again, a way to say to the administration, to the principals, to the teachers, saying, we love what you're doing. You've done a good job with these students. We want to celebrate them. Bring the students in and say, good job. We're proud of you. And there's going to be some ways that we can, again, serve and invest in our communities through doing these kinds of things. We have the opportunity to tread a path of shalom where we are in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. But the only way we can do that is to get outside of these walls and look for ways to love people right where we are. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this call to love our communities. It's, it can be easy to forget. Um, 
we, can, we, can, we, we just do what's natural. When life is hard, we retreat from what's hard. We go back to what's safe and what's comfortable and what's familiar. And um, while that might be okay in a, for a moment, uh, you've called the church to have a much bigger purpose. And so, Father, I pray that we would never lose sight as maybe there's times when our culture pushes on us and makes us feel uncomfortable or makes us feel angry or makes us feel upset. I pray that there's still times where we would um, remember, Father, that we would become centered on your truth um, and remember the mission that you've given us, that our world is not the enemy. They are the mission. Those who do not know you, who are far from you, they are not the enemy. They are, they are the mission. They are the ones that we um, are to go and, and love and reach and show them your goodness by how loving we are and kind we are. And you've called us to pray for those who persecute us and serve and love those who are our enemies. And I pray that we do not miss that. Nobody has ever called people to that ethic before Jesus. And it's a beautiful picture, and it makes the church something so unique and so amazing and such a powerful force for good. And I pray that we don't neglect that calling out of a desire to be um, a little safer, to have life be a little bit easier on us. Um, because yes, it is more difficult to, to, to be people who, who are loving and, and trying to serve and, and being active for our faith. Um, it's, it's a little tougher that way, but it's more rich and more beautiful and more purposeful. And I pray that we don't, um, we don't miss that. So again, thank you for this calling. It's a beautiful thing. And thank you for being with us as we do it and empowering us to, to reach a world that desperately needs to hear the love of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.